Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. In the early hours of September 12, 1826, William Morgan woke to someone opening his cell door. It was a prison guard. He leaned down and dragged Morgan roughly to his feet. Then he said, Mr. Loton Lawson has paid your bond. You're free to go. Morgan felt relieved. Though he didn't know this Mr. Lawson, he was thankful to anyone who would bail him out of jail, especially because Morgan had only been incarcerated out of spite. After he'd announced that he was publishing a book exposing the secrets of Freemasonry, Masons from the local lodge had arrested Morgan on trumped-up charges. Now, only a day since his arrest, he was outside the jail, and the so-called Mr. Lawson was pushing him towards a waiting carriage. But Morgan was uneasy. Something wasn't right, and he couldn't quite put his finger on what. Then he saw it, a small golden signet ring on Lawson's right hand. Engraved in the center were the tiny, delicate figures of an architect's square and compass. Right away, he knew that Lawson was a Freemason. Before he could flee, two men emerged from the carriage and joined Lawson. They overpowered Morgan, forcing him inside. One bolted the door, while the other two jumped up to the front and snapped the reins. Then the Freemasons stole into the night, with Morgan as their captive. The police made no move to stop them, but townspeople reported they could hear Morgan screaming, murder. It was the last word anyone ever heard William Morgan say. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on Freemasonry. Some people consider the Freemasons to be the world's oldest fraternity. They perform good works and foster brotherly love. But others contend that the Freemasons' secrecy hides their true purpose, ruling the world. This week, we'll dive into the history of the Freemasons, their mystical initiation rituals, and the mysterious symbols they use in chapters around the globe. Next week, we'll explore the Freemasons' dark side. Although they claim to be a group without political or religious aims, there are some who accuse the society of trying to establish a new world order. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight 
starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Harry Houdini, even comedian Richard Pryor was a Freemason. To outsiders, the order claims to be no more than a philanthropic social club with an emphasis on moral compassion and spiritual growth. But looking back at the now notable men who have joined the group, it's easy to believe something else could be at work. Freemasons have governed countries, commanded armies, and kick-started revolutions. So, of course, conspiracy theories and rumors have dogged the group since its inception. However, the very first Freemasons weren't statesmen or celebrities. Though the trail is muddled, many members claim Freemasonry began centuries ago in Jerusalem, in the shadow of King Solomon's temple. The story goes like this. Between 900 and 1000 BCE, the wise King Solomon of Israel began work on his famous temple in Jerusalem. His ally, King Hiram of Tyre, sent his best architect, Hiram Abiff, to help Solomon build a temple worthy of Yahweh. Hiram Abiff ran a tight ship while working on the temple. He organized his workers into three levels, apprentices, fellows, and masters. Each worker's task was dependent upon their group. The youngest and least skilled workers were apprentices, and the men with the most experience were masters. Hiram Abiff communicated to his workers using a series of coded phrases and special touches or hand signals. The reason for this was to weed out fraudsters and protect the integrity of the temple. For example, on paydays, Hiram Abiff gave each group of workers a code word to tell the paymasters. This was a security feature. With thousands of men working on the temple, paymasters couldn't recognize each laborer. So by implementing the code word system, Hiram Abiff made sure that all his workers received their proper rate and that the temple didn't accidentally give money to any enterprising thieves. These code phrases, signs, and symbols became ubiquitous in the craft of masonry. They were passed down from master to apprentice through generations of construction workers. Eventually, the secrets of the working masons, called operative masons, were passed on to men who had no interest in constructing buildings. Instead, these men, known as speculative masons, wanted to learn about the universe, and they were the ones who founded the society we now know as Freemasonry. At least that's how Freemason traditions say the society began. Some scholars present a different, less cinematic version of events. They believe that the Freemasons most likely originated in the Middle Ages. In 1066, William the Conqueror, the French Duke of Normandy, seized England for his own rule. 
After the conquest, the Normans wanted to make their mark on their new land. This, coupled with the prevalence of Catholicism at the time, set off a castle and church-building boom across England and the whole continent of Europe. As a result, skilled masons who could shape and build with stone were in high demand. To keep up with the work, some of them lived a nomadic lifestyle, traveling from project to project across Europe. Guilds, called lodges, soon sprang up to provide camaraderie and community to these traveling masons. Many of these lodges were built at construction sites. They provided workers with a place to blow off steam after a long day. While other artisans in the Middle Ages also had guilds, the Masonic lodges were unique for catering to their members' itinerant lifestyles. A new mason in town could simply head to the local guild to find a job, a place to live, meet fellow workers, and learn new skills. The masons in these lodges soon began using secret passwords and handshakes to identify fellow members of their guild. These methods arose for two reasons. The first was to prove that a traveling mason was skilled enough to work on their project. If he knew certain passcodes and signs, it meant he was in good standing with another lodge somewhere else. And if he didn't know them, it meant he didn't possess the skills he claimed to. The second was to protect the trade secrets of the Masons. Once you identified yourself as a fellow Mason of the Guild, higher-level Masons would teach you new skills and pass on construction and engineering techniques. For the first few centuries, lodges were strictly the realm of these operative or working stonemasons. But as the Middle Ages came to a close, external forces shifted the purpose of Masonic lodges. Europe was in the throes of the Age of Enlightenment, a philosophical movement to improve humanity through rational thought. From the mid-1600s to the end of the 1700s, science, philosophy, and political theory centered on reasonable discourse, rather than on the unseen hand of God. Ideas about personal liberty, human rights, science, and separation of church and state were central to many philosophical debates. Lodges became places where new ideas could be discussed and argued over freely. At some point during this time, operative masons began admitting trustworthy men who were not stoneworkers into their lodges. They likely realized that to foster livelier, more well-rounded debates, they needed to allow different viewpoints. Many of these newcomers became speculative masons, men who wanted to study the secrets of the masons, but who didn't want to become stoneworkers. Instead, they were captivated by the philosophy of the Mason guilds. For that reason, they joined the order in droves. Soon enough, Masonic lodges had more speculative members than operative ones. To differentiate themselves from their more technically-minded brethren, speculative Masons began calling themselves Freemasons. However, Freemasons still strove to uphold the practices the operative Masons had used before them. They adopted the Stonemasons' Code of Silence and they continued using many of the operative Masons' secret words and hand grips to ensure that only true Freemasons were privy to their secrets. Then, in February 1717, the four Masonic Lodges of London met at a tavern called the Apple Tree. There, the Lodge's members voted to convene a Grand Lodge that would oversee all the Masons in England. The purpose of this overarching body was to ensure that the Freemasons didn't become just another social club. Society leaders insisted that the focus of the order should always be personal or spiritual growth. 
It was these ideals that the Freemasons began spreading across oceans in the early 1700s. Before convening the Grand Lodge, small groups of Freemasons already existed in Scotland and Ireland. Eventually, Freemasonry spread to other parts of Europe and America. We don't have records of when the first lodge opened its doors in the New World, but we do know that by 1730, there were Masonic chapters in Philadelphia and Boston. This wildfire spread of Freemasonry soon raised eyebrows. Governments suspected that the secretive lodges were hotbeds of sedition and rebellion. The Catholic Church was equally dubious. They were afraid that Freemasonry was anti-Catholic, perhaps a new form of Protestantism, threatening the Church's already tenuous hold over world politics. In 1738, Pope Clement XII issued a papal bull, or an official edict, threatening to excommunicate any Catholic who joined the Freemasons. He wrote, If such people were not doing evil, they would never have so much hatred of the light. While Pope Clement offered no proof for these accusations, the fact remained that, behind the doors of a Masonic lodge, there was a hidden world, invisible to the rest of society. Meanwhile, the Freemasons insisted on keeping up their secrecy. But why? What were they plotting? Up next, the Freemasons reveal their secrets. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. By the early 1700s, Freemasonry had become a worldwide phenomenon. Around the globe, philosophers and professionals of all types gathered in Masonic lodges to discuss new ideas about humanity. Distance and language separated these individual lodges, but they each observed variations of the same traditions. The most important of these was, and still is, the initiation ritual, which was kept secret from outsiders for hundreds of years. Freemasons, like their stonemason predecessors, can progress to three different levels of masonry, apprentice, journeyman or fellow, and master mason. Though each level's initiation is slightly different, the ceremony starts the same way. You wait, nerves buzzing, in the antechamber of the lodge. You've petitioned the worshipful master for entry into his chapter, and today is your day of judgment the day when the members decide whether or not to initiate you as a Freemason. 
Even here, outside the sacred inner sanctum of the temple, the walls are adorned with dozens of symbols. You see a mallet, a chisel, a compass. On a far wall is the single, golden, all-seeing eye of the great architect of the universe. A mason approaches you. This is the Tyler, the outer guard of the lodge. He has come to prepare you for your journey into masonry. The Tyler rolls up your shirt sleeve, revealing your right arm. Then he kneels to the ground and rolls your left pant leg up above your knee. This is to check that you're a free man, unfettered by the shackles of servitude. Next, the Tyler motions for you to unbutton your shirt. At his urging, you reveal the left side of your chest. You would think that perhaps he wants you to signify your heart is open. The Tyler is satisfied. You know this when he wraps a loose rope around your neck, called a cable toe. Then he blindfolds you. In darkness, you feel the Tyler guide you to a door. He places your hand on the wood, and you knock three times. This signals to the officers inside that the initiation can begin. After the door creaks open, the inner guard guides you inside. You can smell candles burning somewhere in the room. You sense the chamber lies in darkness. The inner guard brings you to a stop at the front of the room, where a set of hands takes yours. The owner of the hands introduces himself as the senior deacon of the lodge. The senior deacon leads you around the room, speaking in turn to three other officers. Freemasons have never revealed the specific questions asked during an initiation to the outside world. But as each officer represents a particular aspect of Freemasonry, we can guess what they may be about. First is the junior deacon, seated somewhere near the southwest corner of the room. He represents the intersection between the soul and the mind. He might ask questions to ascertain whether your mind is clear and your soul is pure. Up next is the junior warden. He personifies the intellect, the balance of the spirit and the psyche. He may question your goals for becoming a mason and the shortcomings you recognize in yourself. Third is the senior warden, who sits along the western wall. He represents the human soul, the pure psychic aspect of man. He may question your thoughts and judgments to gauge your openness to new ideas. Finally, if you answer the officer's questions truthfully and satisfactorily, the deacon will take you to the Worshipful Master. Though you can't see the master, his low, powerful voice gives you the sense of an aging leader. He interrogates you at length, questioning your motives, your faith, and your morality. He asks you if you wish to enter the ground floor of King Solomon's temple. You confirm that you do. You have never been more sure of anything in your life. The worshipful master asks you to place your right hand on the Bible on the altar that stands before you. Once you do, he says, repeat after me. I swear never to reveal any part or parts, point or points of the secrets and mysteries of or belonging to free and accepted masons which have been, shall now, or hereafter be communicated to me. You say this oath back to him. Then he speaks again. If I break my oath, I will have my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by the root, and my body buried in the sand of the sea at low water mark. You swallow nervously. You've heard that everything with the Freemasons is symbolic, but could it be possible this threat is real? 
after a moment of contemplation, you agree. It's a steep penalty, but you feel confident you'll never betray your Masonic brothers. The blindfold falls from your eyes, and after being in the dark for so long, the light inside the lodge dazzles you. You take in the splendor of the room. The floor tiles are black and white. As you'll come to learn, this checkerboard pattern symbolizes the duality of man's earthly life, the positive and negative interplaying. Above you, the ceiling is festooned with stars, representing the ethereal heaven. The members applaud you. The worshipful master congratulates you and welcomes you as an entered apprentice of the lodge. He says, I now present my right hand in token of friendship and brotherly love, and will invest you with the grip and word. The master shows you how to form the grip of the entered apprentice. He shakes your hand, placing his thumb on top of your index finger knuckle and pressing down. You do the same. He says, Boaz, my brother, is the name of this grip. He directs your attention once more to the altar at the center of the room. Laid out next to the Bible is a series of stonecutter's tools, the instruments of the entered apprentice. The worshipful master points to a ruler divided into three folding sections. He explains that it was used by workers to measure their work, to ascertain the time and effort they would need to complete it. You are to do the same, using the 24 divisions of the folding gauge to measure the 24 hours in your day. You must divide them between prayer, labor, refreshment, and sleep. Next is a gavel shaped like a workman's mallet. The gavel is a reminder that nothing comes without hard work. You can design the most beautiful, skillful piece of art in your head, but you still need your hands to create it. The final tool is a small, sharp chisel used to shape the hardest stone. The work a stonemason does with a chisel, though difficult and time-consuming, is necessary to finish a project. The chisel is a reminder to persevere to reach perfection. Finally, the worshipful master presents you with a short white apron. He explains that it is a ceremonial garment, passed down from the days when stonecutters of cathedrals wore such things. The master warns that to be a true Freemason, the apprentice must continually strive to reach spiritual perfection. He must help his fellow men whenever possible. He must work for justice in all matters. He must find mental and spiritual fortitude within himself and always move from the darkness to the light. And finally, he must be loyal to the Lodge, never betraying their secrets. With that, the initiation is complete. If you haven't noticed yet, everything in Freemasonry is a symbol. Things from carvings to clothing to the cardinal directions have layers of meaning that only become revealed as you progress through the three degrees of Masonry. In fact, apprentice Masons spend much of their time at their lodges studying Masonic symbology and allegory. Each layer teaches a moral lesson, like the importance of helping one's fellow man or realizing that the great architect lives inside each of us. Most of these lessons are related to the allegorical story of Hiram Abiff and the Temple of Solomon. When operative masonry changed to speculative Freemasonry, new masons adopted the Hiram Abiff story as a metaphorical morality lesson. They used it to teach their members to hold fast to their ideals, just as Hiram Abiff did in the face of death. 
As the tale goes, three of Hiram Abiff's workers were dissatisfied with how the architect managed the building of Solomon's temple. The disgruntled artisans were Jubala, a stonemason, Jubalo, a carpenter, and Jubalum, a craftsman. The men resented that Hiram Abiff required all laborers to work their way through the apprentice and fellow level before reaching the higher paid level of a master. They thought the process was too long and that they were skilled enough to be masters already. One night, the three frustrated workers wait for Hiram Abiff inside the temple. They station themselves at each of the three doors. Hiram Abiff approaches the south gate where Jubilo is waiting. When he refuses to make Jubilo a master, Jubilo strikes Hiram Abiff with his ruler. Wounded, Hiram Abiff tries to run to the west gate to escape, but Jubilo is there, lying in wait. He too strikes Hiram Abiff with an iron square, and Hiram Abiff flees to the east gate, right into the clutches of the third man, Jubalum. Jubalum hits the injured architect on the head with his mallet, killing him instantly. In the initiation ceremony for the third and highest degree of Freemasonry, the prospective master mason must act out Hiram Abiff's last moments in a kind of morality play. It's only once he's confirmed as a master that the true insights of the Hiram story are revealed. The first assassin, Jubilo, is the embodiment of untruth. He uses his ruler, a tool of precision, but he misses with it. He tries to strike Hiram Abiff's throat, the seat of physical life, but instead he hits the architect's shoulder. The second assassin, Jubala, personifies ignorance. He uses the square, a tool of measurement and righteousness, to attack Hiram Abiff's chest, the home of the soul. The final killer, Jubalum, stands for ambition. He uses his mallet, a tool signifying its owner's pure will, and strikes Hiram in the forehead, the seat of intelligence. Only then is Hiram killed. Though there are probably hundreds of meanings and symbols within this story, the most significant is the struggle of darkness and light. The legend teaches that there will always be agents of darkness bent on subverting the secrets of Freemasons for their own gains, so Masons must stand by their promises as Hiram did. They cannot reveal secrets they have sworn to protect, and they must live by the code of Masonic morality, even if it leads to death. Freemasons must also strive to journey from the darkness of ignorance, as represented by Hiram's murderers, and towards the brilliance of enlightenment, represented by Hiram himself. These are pretty admirable lessons, yet outsiders are still wary of Freemasons. The air of secrecy and threats of death can make it seem like they're protecting something more valuable than just allegorical stories, and many believe that Masonic symbols are the key to understanding what the group is hiding. These Masonic symbols are everywhere, on buildings, in logos, even on the United States dollar bill. Perhaps the use of these symbols is coincidental, or maybe they were put there by the Masons to remind their brothers to uphold the virtues of relief, truth, and brotherly love. Or maybe that's just the company line, and the symbols are a call to action. Up next, the symbolism and secrets of the Freemasons. Now back to the story. 
In the centuries since Freemasonry began, members have insisted that the society's only purpose was to educate and encourage. They claim that their symbols are mere allegories, used to teach existential truths and foster compassion. As they put it, they're a society with secrets, not a secret society. But for just as long, non-Freemasons have believed something nefarious was happening inside Masonic lodges. They asserted that the Masons' allegories, rituals, and symbols weren't only educational tools, but very real, coded messages. To parse these accusations, we must scrutinize the symbols themselves. When you hear the words Freemason symbol, chances are you immediately picture the architect's square and compass. This is the sign of Freemasonry. It's in a rough diamond shape, with the square's 45-degree angle on the bottom and the compass opened in a smaller, acute angle on the top. In the center is a capital letter G, which some argue stands for geometry, and others claim represents the great architect, or God. According to Duncan's Masonic Monitor of 1866, the symbol's meaning is as follows. The square, to square our actions, the compass to circumscribe and keep us within bounds with all mankind. The other Freemason symbol you may be familiar with is the all-seeing eye. It's usually represented as a floating eye, sometimes above a pyramid, and it's thought to represent the great architect's omniscience. These symbols are pretty familiar because they appear in many of America's most famous buildings. Washington, D.C. is a Freemason's playground. The architects who designed the White House, the U.S. Capitol Building, and the Washington Monument were all active Freemasons. Each of these buildings had a Masonic ceremony when their cornerstones were laid. And in 1793, George Washington attended the cornerstone-laying ceremony of the Capitol Building, wearing his very own Masonic apron. Like Washington, at least 13 of the 39 men who signed the United States Constitution were Freemasons. It's why historians have made so many connections between the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and Masonic ideals. After all, things like separation of church and state, free enterprise, equality, and individual rights were Masonic principles long before America became a country. Critics and conspiracists argue that all these clues, Masonic buildings, Masonic leaders, Masonic principles, point to one thing. America is a Freemason experiment, and the proof is right before our eyes. We see evidence of Masonic influence in the United States every day. On June 20th, 1782, Congress accepted a proposal for a new sign of the country, the Great Seal of the United States. For over 200 years, versions of this same seal have appeared on all official documentation from the U.S. Department of State. A committee of four men designed the seal. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Pierre du Cimetière. Of these men, Benjamin Franklin was a confirmed Freemason. The resulting design was a two-sided seal. On the front was a bald eagle clutching an olive branch in its right talon and 13 arrows in its left. Its beak holds a ribbon with the words E Pluribus Unum, meaning out of many, one. The reverse side of the great seal is where the design gets a little strange. On this panel, there is an unfinished pyramid. Atop it is a triangular version of the all-seeing eye. And above the eye are the words Anuit coiptis, meaning Providence favors our undertakings. 
Below the pyramid is another motto, Novus Ordo Seclorum, which means New Order of the Ages. In addition to this seemingly telling phrase, the Eye of Providence that appears above the pyramid is a Masonic emblem. It's the same as the all-seeing eye. You could walk into any of the 36 lodges in Washington, D.C., and you'd probably find it somewhere inside. Anti-Masonic websites insist that the blatant presence of a Freemason symbol on an official American seal is a sort of dog whistle, signaling to other members that a cabal of Freemasons runs America. This is a bit of a stretch. In actuality, the all-seeing eye and pyramid probably have no Masonic intention behind them. Though the secret society has co-opted it, the eye wasn't always strictly a Freemason symbol. In fact, the earliest surviving documents that feature the all-seeing eye as a Masonic symbol date from 1797, 15 years after the Founding Fathers approved the Great Seal of the United States. Furthermore, Benjamin Franklin, the only confirmed Freemason on the Seal Designing Committee, didn't even contribute any visual elements to the project. Apparently, all of his suggestions were rejected, left on the cutting room floor. Even more importantly, the symbol of an eye inside a triangle dates back to the Renaissance to before speculative Freemasonry. Even so, anti-Mason sentiment persists. People suspect the Freemasons of hiding something horrible probably because humans always fear what they can't or aren't allowed to understand. But make no mistake, while anti-Masons are wrong to fear these symbols, their concerns about the society's secrets aren't entirely baseless. This was best evidenced by the events that unfolded in the infamous Morgan Affair. In 1824, William Morgan was a vagrant handyman set on learning enough about Freemasonry so he could lie his way into the lodges of upstate New York and gather insider information. Apparently, he was a great liar, because two years later, Morgan announced that he'd written a book that contained all the dearest-kept secrets of the Freemasons. Members of nearby lodges were outraged. And when Morgan struck a deal with David C. Miller, a local newspaper publisher from Batavia, New York, the Freemasons hoped to stop Morgan's book and began harassing the publisher. When that didn't kill the deal, a group of drunken Freemasons tried to break into Miller's print shop on September 8, 1826. They failed, but two days later, they succeeded in setting the shop ablaze. The next day, the Freemasons headed to Morgan's house. Using their connections to local law enforcement, they arrested him for owing a debt. Morgan was remanded to the Batavia jail overnight. With Morgan incarcerated, the Freemason mob moved on to his home. They tore through the house, upending desks and bookshelves in search of the would-be author's manuscript, but it was nowhere to be found. The next morning, charges against Morgan were dropped and he was released from jail. But later that same day, the Freemasons had Morgan arrested again for allegedly stealing a collar and tie. The authorities imprisoned Morgan once more, this time in Canadagua a tiny town about 50 miles east of Batavia. This was where Freemason Loton Lawson found Morgan in the early hours of September 12, 1826. Lawson bailed the disheveled muckraker out and forced him into a carriage. Morgan pled for help, crying murder through the carriage windows as they barreled down the road. William Morgan was never seen again. After his disappearance, many suspected that the Freemasons murdered him and threw him in either Lake Ontario or the Niagara River. 
Lowton Lawson and several of his associates were put on trial, but in January of 1827, they received incredibly lenient sentences. It was later discovered that the prosecutor and several members of the jury were also Masons. Morgan's disappearance only furthered his anti-Mason cause. Miller published the book, which became a bestseller, but it didn't have any new, shocking, or particularly scandalous revelations about the Freemasons. Still, the Morgan affair convinced people that the suspicions they held about Freemasons were true, especially after they watched Masons in New York quite literally get away with murder. The backlash was instantaneous. Citizens throughout New York State swore never again to vote for a Freemason candidate. This is probably why President John Quincy Adams made his re-election campaign pointedly anti-Masonic. Adams even openly declared, I am not, never was, and never shall be a Freemason. By 1832, the anti-Masonic party became America's first third party to participate in a presidential election, but their nominee, William Wirt, lost soundly to Andrew Jackson, a proud Freemason. It was a sign of things to come. The anti-Masonic party's political fervor soon died out. However, the questions raised by the Morgan affair remained. A band of Freemasons likely killed a man for threatening to expose their darkest secrets. Why? What could they possibly be hiding? Over time, people came to believe that, instead of a social fraternity, the Freemasons are an occultist sect. They think that Freemasonry is a religion, hidden to everyone but the highest-ranking members. Others insist that the Freemasons are a secret cabal, an underground force that seeks to run the world. They believe the group will rise up, establish a worldwide authoritarian government, and implement a bloody New World Order. But there's one theory that's even more frightening. Some people insist that the New World Order is upon us, and that they have proof that the Freemasons are already in control. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with part two, where we dive into the many conspiracy theories that center on the Freemasons. For more information on Freemasonry, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Freemasons, the illustrated book of the Ancient Brotherhood by Michael Johnstone, and Freemasons for Dummies by Christopher Hodap, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead 
use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>